So this morning we are making our way through Romans. We're in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, so I would invite you to turn your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to that section of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, I would ask you to just grab one of those blue ones located underneath the seats around you. Flip that to page 941. That'll bring you to our text this morning. This is actually part two of a sermon we started last week, and we were looking at this, Romans 4, 1 through 8, and last week was mostly introduction, and we started to look at the first two verses. We kind of stopped on the third one. I told you we would pick it up uh, this week where we left off, so that's exactly what we're going to do. I'm not going to have time to kind of give review, so I would encourage you, if you didn't hear last week, because there were some important things in there that were, were said, at least I think they were important, uh, to go online and listen to that sermon in your, when you get a chance. But this morning we're going to just simply read verses 1 through 8, and then, and then we'll get, get after it. So beginning in Romans chapter 4, verse 1, just follow along as I read, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And remember I told you now he's going to quote Genesis fifteen six. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So inside of your bulletins, there's an outline, and we're going to simply continue, continue to examine and draw out several truths from the faith of Abraham. I told you last week, this whole chapter, chapter 4, is really dedicated to exploring Abraham, and particularly Abraham's faith, and exploring this verse in Genesis 15, 6, where it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's really what chapter 4 is committed to. And so we're going to be going through it, and we'll keep just adding points to the same outline. And we're doing that so that we might understand the role and nature of faith as it relates to our salvation. What role does faith play in our salvation, and what is the nature of faith? What is it like concerning our salvation? And so the first truth that we drew out of this text, at least in this section, verses 1 through 8, is, and it's simple, it was not by works, but rather by faith that Abraham was justified. It was not by works, but rather by faith that Abraham was justified. So let's pick up where we left off last week. Romans 4, verse 3. Look again back at your text. I'm going to read it again. For what does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? Paul now appeals to the Word of God, appeals to the Old Testament Scriptures, specifically Genesis 15, 6, and he quotes, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, so based on the text, was it Abraham's works that justified him? Or to say it another way, was it his good works that were counted to him as righteousness? No, not according to Scripture, not according to Scripture. And beloved, 
Paul keeps coming back to this. He looked at justification by faith alone in Romans 3, and he was explaining it. Now he turns to Abraham as really a model of what faith is, and particularly this faith that justifies. This is a really big deal, a really big issue. There are still, like I said before, religious communities committed to the idea, and I would say anything outside of Christianity in some way is committed to this idea that we are made right with God, we are justified somehow by what we do, or something we do, or our sacrifices, that that's how we get right with God. But the message of Christianity is clear, and it comes over again and again, that we are only made right with God through faith. And so Paul turns to Abraham to show that this has always been the case, turns to Abraham to show that the Old Testament always spoke this way. This is not a new idea Paul came up with, justification by faith alone. It's not new. It's always been the way God saves people. So according to Scripture, rather, it was simply the fact that he believed God. That's how he was justified. That's it. That's all it says. He believed God. But we've got to break this verse down, okay? We've got to break it down. And we're going to do that by looking first at the word counted. Look at your text. Do you see it there? That word counted, it may be a different word, depending on your translation. It appears in verse 3 there. It was counted to him as righteousness. This word in one form or another comes up 11 times. 11 times you'll find counted or counts or count. It comes up 11 times in this chapter. Paul repeats it 11 times. It's important. It's in that particular passage in Genesis 15:6 that Paul is referring to here. And it comes up five times of the 11 just in verses 3 through 8. This word counted. Some other Bible translations, such as the NIV or the New American Standard Bible, they use the word credited, credited, instead of counted. But both words, counted or credited, are getting at the same idea. Abraham believed God, he believed God, and it, is, and it, or that is his faith, was counted or credited to him as righteousness. He believed God. And it is his faith that was counted or credited to him as righteousness. So what does that mean? What does that mean exactly? Well, Bible scholars inform us that the Greek word Paul used here that's translated counted or credited, depending on what translation you have, I'm not going to try to say it. The Greek word is L-O-G-I-Z-O-M-A-I. It's that word. It was used in accounting or as an accounting term, or in the context of financial or commercial setting. Okay, So it's used as an accounting term or in a financial or commercial context. And what the word means is, is to put or credit to one's account. To put or credit to one's account. That's what the Greek word there means. So now you might understand why we use English words such as credited or counted to try to describe the meaning of this Greek word. So then this verse is understood to mean this, that Abraham believed God. Listen, this is important. He believed God, and as a result of his faith, righteousness was put or credited to Abraham's account. It was put or credited to Abraham's account. What account? His bank account? No, his, his spiritual account, if you will. Okay? He believed God, and consequently, because of his faith, God credited righteousness to his account. Now, you might ask, what righteousness is this 
that was put to Abraham's spiritual account because of his faith. What is this righteousness? Well, if you were here in the past weeks, we talked about this at length. In Romans 3, 21 through 24, this righteousness is the righteousness of or from God. It is the righteousness that is of or from God. It is the righteousness, beloved, that God accepts and God gives. Or as we see here in Romans 4, it is the righteousness that God counts or credits to those who believe. It is the righteousness that gives the unrighteous, us, a righteous status before God. Did you hear that? It is the righteousness that gives the unrighteous, us, a righteous status before God. A status that no sinner could ever possibly achieve on their own. But it is a status that is absolutely necessary in order for the sinner, us, to be fully acceptable to a holy and perfectly righteous God. In order for us, sinners, to be completely right with God. You understand that? Kind of? Okay, we're going to keep looking at it. Here's what one writer says concerning this. He puts it this way. He, that is Abraham, received it, that is righteousness, by faith. How did he receive it? By his good works? By something he did? By his sacrificial life? By his long times of prayer? By faith. And that's how all men, all people, are made righteous before God. It is not because they can become righteous on their own. It is because the righteousness comes to them from God, credited to their account by faith. That's a quote from John MacArthur concerning this text. So Paul here is basically establishing the fact that Abraham was justified, not basically is, this is what he's saying, he's justified not by his works, and we talked about this last week, as many of the Jews wrongly believed, but rather he is justified by his faith, which is the very same way and only way that any sinner can be justified before God. Okay? Now let's look at the verse again. We've looked at counted. Look back, Romans 4, 3. What, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It says there that Abraham believed God. He believed God. What does that mean exactly? Just some kind of general reference? He just believed God? Well, this verse is in a context. In other words, we need to look back. He's quoting Genesis 15, 6, but if I'm going to figure out exactly what this means, I need to look back at where that verse was in the Scriptures and look around it to see what was going on when it just says Abraham believed God. I can't put my own meaning there. I can't say, well, this is what it means. And I can't just say, I don't know what it means, so I'll, I don't know. It just, it's just a general reference. It's not a general reference. It has a context, okay? And so we need to look back at the context to figure out what's going on. So let's do that. Let's go back in our Bibles to Genesis. It's the first book of your Bible, Genesis, and we'll pop, our, pop, the old, pop it open to chapter 15, and we will see this verse in its context, and then I'll broaden the context a little more into Genesis to try to make sense 
of what it means that Abraham believed God and his belief, his faith then, was counted to him, credited to him as righteousness. God put his righteousness to Abraham's spiritual account, making him fully acceptable to God. Why did he do it? Because he believed God. What does that mean? Let's find out. All right, Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. That's Abraham, okay? This is before God changed his name. He actually said, you were called Abram, now you'll be called Abraham. So it's the same guy, just so you understand. Came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Verse 5. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Verse 6. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Okay, so now we have some context for Genesis 15, 6. He believed the Lord. Now we know what's going on around that when he did this, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now what you need to know, now I've got to back up a little more. What you need to know, if you don't, is that God made some promises to Abraham years earlier when he was 75 years old. When he was 75 years old. By the way, Abraham lived a little bit longer than we Normally do today, he lived to 175 years old. So he still has 100 years to go. But he's an older man now. He's 75 years old. And these promises that he made to him before we see this take place in Genesis 15, those promises were made in Genesis 12. This is part of the homework I gave you last week, to read Genesis 12 and, and some chapters after that, and also to read the book of Galatians, which would have been helpful if you did. But if you didn't read it, I would encourage you to read it this week and also to read Hebrews 11, because all of these things help you understand this man Abraham and what's going on. So years earlier, we see Genesis 15, takes Abram outside, look up to the stars. He believes what God says. Your descendants are going to be more than that, right? Years earlier than this, than this happened, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, these promises are made. Let's read those. So just flip back a little bit to the left, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Here they are. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, okay, leave, I'm going to have you leave where you currently live, and your kindred, and your father's house, just leave your family, relatives, that is, behind, to the land that I will show you. I'm going to, I'm going to show you where to go, I'm going to take you to another land, and I will make of you, here's the promise, a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And I want you to note the last part of, the, part of this verse. I want you to note it. And in you, this is all part of the promise, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you catch that? You should underline that in your Bibles if you do that sort of thing, or at least make a mental note of Genesis 12, verse 3. Now, let me try to tie this all together for you without reading the entire book of Genesis and doing all those things. 
Abraham had been waiting for the fulfillment of these promises, the ones we just read, since God made them. He's waiting. But when we arrive at Genesis 15, years later now, 10 years later, in Abraham's story, we learn that up to this point, he had remained childless. Childless. So, he has no children. So, he has no descendants or offspring. And he and his wife are not getting any younger. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? He was 75 when the promises were made to him. So, now he's still yet older and still nothing has happened. And these promises that God made to Abraham certainly presuppose that he's going to have children. I mean, how do you become a great nation if you have no kids? Do you get it? It's very simple. This is not complex. This is just a very simple, we're just working through it and getting the story. So Abraham now reminds God of the situation that he still has no children of his own. And God says, Abraham, look up into the sky and count the stars. (laughs) That is if you can, all right? Because you can't. That's impossible. That is how numerous your descendants or offspring shall be. And Abraham believed God. You know what that means? It means Abraham put his trust in God to do what he had promised. Okay? Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Included in what God had promised was the promise of a worldwide blessing that would come through Abraham, or more specifically, through his descendants. It's included in that promise. Genesis 12, 3, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? You with me? Now listen to this. It gets really good. In Galatians 3.8, this is why I wanted you to read Galatians. In Galatians 3.8, Paul refers to these words that God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. That's the Apostle Paul, the same one who's writing the book or wrote the book of Romans. He refers to those specific words, you can look it up if you'd like, as the gospel that was preached to Abraham. That's what he calls those words, the gospel. Specifically, that part of it, the gospel that was preached to Abraham. That's what Paul calls the promise or that promise. He calls it the gospel. Beloved, what's the gospel? The gospel is, it means good news, but in the context of Scripture, it means the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer the Savior, the Messiah. Paul calls these words, this promise made to Abraham, he calls it the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. Now listen, we clearly know now, based on the completed revelation from God that we have, all 66 books of the Bible, his written word, that the promise of worldwide blessing made to Abraham was indeed the gospel. It was the gospel, as Paul calls it, because it was really a promise concerning Jesus Christ, 
the Savior of the world, the one who, by the way, was, was and is, because he's still living, a descendant of Abraham. Did you know that? If you didn't, it's important. See, all of a sudden, Abraham's not just some guy in the Bible. He has really important connections. In fact, when you go to Matthew 1.1, right? When it begins to break out the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. They want you to know this one is a descendant of Abraham. He is the descendant of Abraham. He is the one that we have been waiting for that was promised to us. The one through whom a great multitude of people from every nation and all the families of the earth would be blessed. Because they, listen, they would be made right with God through him by faith. That's the promise. But did Abraham know all that? Did Abraham know all that? Is that how he understood the promise? That through him, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Did he actually think about, did he, when he heard this, he had faith in God, which means he had faith that God would fulfill all of his promises, which included this worldwide blessing. Was he thinking then that this was the coming of Christ? Or the fact that this promise included the idea that God would send the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and that the Savior would then come through Abraham. And so Abraham's saying, if this is all going to happen, God, uh, it needs to happen kind of soon because I still have no kids. How's this going to happen? And I'm getting older, and so is she. Okay? Did Abraham know all that? And that's a question that Bible scholars like to ask and try to figure out. Well, I want to show you, I'm going to give you my position, I'm going to show you a very interesting passage in, chap- in Matthew, Mark, Luke, the fourth gospel, John. Turn there if you would. So you go to your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Turn there to chapter 8. By the way, chapter 8 is a great chapter. Don't read it now, but read it later. Read it. I love that chapter. John chapter 8. We're going to look at verse 56 only. 56 only. And so what's going on just quickly is, without getting into it, Jesus is speaking to the Jews. He's having another one of those controversial conversations with them where they're kind of attacking him and he's firing back. But we're just going to focus in on this one phrase he makes. John 8, 56. Here he says to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Just pause there for a second. Think about what Jesus just said. Your father Abraham rejoiced. Past tense, he rejoiced. Sometime back in the past, he rejoiced that he would see my day. And Christ was, his day had come. He saw it and was glad. Commenting on this passage, on Romans, specifically this passage and Romans 4 that we're looking at this morning and making a connection now, that great preacher who's gone now of the 20th century who preached in London, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this, listen, when therefore you read this phrase that we just read in Romans 4, Abraham believed God, when you read that, 
do not assume that it just means that Abraham believed in God. It's not a general statement like that. That is not the context. It goes well beyond that. Abraham believed in God's way of redemption as you and I do. He believed in the same way of redemption that you and I do. He did not see it clearly. It's 2,000 years removed before it occurred. But he saw it afar off. It has happened now. It has been manifested in all its fullness because Christ has come. But Abraham saw it afar off about 2,000 years before it happened. One more. Another commentator commenting now just on John 8, 56. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. That is the messianic salvation which God promised In other words, that's what he sees in this. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Genesis 12, 3. And then the commentator asks this, how much of the messianic times, the times of the Messiah, Christ, did God reveal to his friend Abraham is unknown? We don't know how much he knew, but it is clear that he knew of the coming salvation and he rejoiced in knowing about it and expecting it. And expecting it. In other words, listen, beloved. God's revelation has been progressive. He has given us more and more as we've moved throughout history. His revelation to us is now complete. We have it. Okay? But over the years, he was revealing his great plan. And so the idea that Abraham knew that this Christ, this Messiah's name would be Jesus, is probably not something he knew. The idea that he would be born in Bethlehem was certainly probably not, that had not been revealed yet, something he knew. Uh, The idea that he would hang on a Roman cross, there was no Rome. He probably didn't know those things. But clearly he knew enough to know and rejoice in the coming of the Messiah. He knew enough because Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it. And it was glad. So then the conclusion I draw from all of this is that Abraham, by faith, listen, this is critical. By faith, he believed God's word. He believed his word. He believed his promises. And so that means in part that he anticipated and looked forward to what God would do to redeem humanity, to bring about salvation, to save sinners. And the truth is that as Christians, listen, we're now living what? 4,000 years apart from Abraham. Abraham was approximately 2,000 years before the cross. We're 2,000 years on this side of the cross. Christians fundamentally do the same thing that Abraham did. You remember last week we sang, Father Abraham had many sons. If you missed it, then you missed out on a great rendition of me giving that. And no, you didn't. But do you remember I I talked about that? Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. That's because we become, in a sense, sons and daughters of Abraham when we share in the same faith that Abraham had. We fundamentally do the same thing. By faith, we believe God's word. We believe his promises. But instead of looking forward in time, we look back. 
We look back in time and we believe in what God has done in the past now to redeem humanity, to secure our salvation through the Christ who we know name is Jesus. We believe it is through Him that the fullness of blessing has come, that blessing that was promised to all the families of the earth, to every nation. Do you see that? Do you understand? So when it says Abraham believed God, it's not in some, just some general sense. It's much bigger than that. It's not just that he looked up to the stars and said, oh, okay, I believe that. So, that, so God says, therefore, I'm crediting you with righteousness and you, you are acceptable to me because you believe my promise about, ha- about having many descendants. Beloved, the promise is all connected together. And that promise, included in that promise, is that blessing, that worldwide blessing. And so Abraham said, God, I am trusting in you. I believe that you're going to bring about all of these incredible things through me. I don't see how you're going to do it. You don't even have kids, God. But I believe you're going to do it. You're going to fix us. You're going to reverse the curse, God. And I'm going to be a part of that. That's crazy. And I don't know how, but I just believe. And because of that, God's righteousness was credited counted, put to his account. Okay? All right. So still expounding upon the fact that Abraham was justified, justified by faith and not works, Paul now moves from Scripture, or the proof of Scripture, and he turns to just logic, reason, reason. And he does that in verses 4 and 5. Let's look at it now. Verses 4 and 5 in Romans, back there. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So in verse 4, Paul is simply pointing out that when, it's simple, that when someone works, okay, you guys understand this, right? The wages they receive are not counted or credited to them as a gift, but rather they are counted as, as an obligation. That's how the NIV puts it, as an obligation, or what is owed to them, or their due. Their due. Give me my due. That means give me what you owe me. Give me what you're obligated to give me because I've done this and that and this and that. One writer just puts it this way. If a person works, says Paul, the pay he or she receives in return is a matter of obligation, right? Or fair compensation, the employer owes the worker a certain wage and is not giving it freely or without compulsion. So now I believe that Paul points out this very obvious fact, this logic, because Paul has already made it clear in Romans 3.24 that people, sinners, are justified by God's grace as a gift as a gift. People are made right with God by His grace as a gift. That justification is a result of God's unmerited and undeserved favor and not the result of human works. He's already made that clear. In other words, we are not justified by God because He is under obligation to us 
like an employer is to his employee to pay him for his or her wages. But rather, justification is strictly a matter of grace. And since it is a matter of grace, unmerited, undeserved favor, it cannot be based on works, but rather it is simply based on faith alone. Paul further drives this home in verse 5 by contrasting now the one who works in verse 4 with the one who doesn't work and adding the fact that it is the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. So it's not the one who works, it's the one who doesn't work and believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That is the one whose spiritual account is credited with the righteousness of God. That is the one. Notice now, beloved, it is the ungodly, the wicked. That's what the word means. The wicked, the ungodly, who God justifies. That's who he justifies. In Romans, later on we learn, right? We learn that it is Christ who died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Did Christ die for the godly? Did Christ die for the righteous? No, because then he wouldn't have died for anyone. See? And here we go, in the same line as that, God justifies the ungodly. He justifies the wicked. So obviously, if that is the case, if those are the people that God justifies, then justification has nothing to do with righteousness that a person has earned somehow. It can't. Or naturally, they possess but rather their justification is entirely a matter of righteousness that is counted or credited to them by God as a gift according to his grace. According to his grace. His unmerited and undeserved favor. This is who God justifies. The ungodly. God credits the unrighteous with righteousness, thereby giving them a righteous status that they would not have otherwise a status that makes them entirely right with God. That's who God justifies when they have faith. It's not a matter of works. One writer just says it this way, righteousness, these are the same ideas being communicated over and over again, and I do this on purpose because this is such an important thing to understand about our salvation. Righteousness is credited to the account of those who don't deserve it. I could also add, who haven't earned it, it's the same idea, who don't possess it. They are the ungodly. That's what we are before God, the wicked. But in faith, believe to receive it. You know, I'm just... We... I've talked to you before about the whole prosperity preaching nonsense that is on most of the 
a lot of the television channels, and it's the faith movement, they call it, the faith movement. And they will tell you things like, you must believe to receive, right? You speak powerful words, and you believe those words, and if you do that, then you'll receive the thing that you're believing in. And their focus always is on, you'll receive that big house. You'll receive health to your body. You'll, you'll receive that promotion. You'll receive the car. Believe and receive. And that primarily attracts a lot of people, and they go, yeah, that's right. And if you don't have that big car or that big house or your health is ailing, it's because obviously you don't have the faith to believe and receive. Beloved, the Bible never talks about this nonsense. What it talks about is having faith and believing to receive the righteousness of God. That's the big issue for us. It's not that we don't have the car that we don't want or the house that we don't want. It is this issue right here. This is our biggest problem. If we don't have the righteousness of God, then God will separate us from him forever when we face him. After our death, we're done. He cannot allow us into his heaven. This is the focus of God's word. We believe in God and his promises. We believe now on this side of the cross in that Redeemer. We know who he is, Jesus Christ. We believe in his death on a cross that has made us right with God. And because of that, God credits his very righteousness. Because of that faith, he credits his very righteousness to our account. And we are made right with God. What else matters at that point? Poor, rich, who cares? You see? That's why I get so frustrated with these prosperity people. It's a lie. They totally take your focus away from what's really important. And it's all unbiblical. Look back at the... Now let's look at the next verses, 6 through 8. Verses 6 through 8. So Paul appeals to Scripture, proving that justification is not by works, not for Abraham. It was faith. He believed God. He believed in the promise that a worldwide blessing would come through him. He believed. And Paul uses logic. Guys, if it's by works, then it's an obligation, but we already know that we are justified by grace alone. Through faith alone, it's a gift. And if that's not, if it is by works, then it's no longer a gift and there is no salvation because this is how God does it. He justifies the ungodly. They haven't done anything to earn it. They can't. They're wicked. He must just grant it to them. He has to credit it to their account. They're bankrupt in the righteousness department. You understand? They're bankrupt. Now Paul turns to to another scripture, but something that David said. King David. Verse 6, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So, so whatever he just said, he says, just as David also speaks of this. And then he quotes this passage. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. Okay, now listen. Paul quotes the words of David here from Psalm 32. Okay? Psalm 32. Verses 1 and the first part of 2. 
And he, this is a psalm written after King David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and conspired to have her husband murdered. Okay, King David, king of Israel. And while we know from the scriptures that David suffered terrible consequences for these sins, he did. His life was kind of messed up after that. We also know, even though he suffered those terrible consequences, we also know from 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, before the consequences happened to David for his sin, we know from that passage that the Lord had already taken away his sin. 2 Samuel 12, 13, prophet Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin, that he had forgiven his sin. Okay, He sins greatly, greatly. Adultery, conspiracy, he had a man murdered, the wife's husband. And the prophet says to him, God has taken away your sin. Or as Paul quotes it here in Romans, the Lord did not count his sin against him. The Lord did not count his sin against him. Now, a question that is raised by Bible commentators is why, why did Paul quote these words from David? Listen, why did he quote these words from David since we have Paul, you can look at the text and follow the logic with me. We have Paul here stating in verse 6 that David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Okay, But then he goes on to quote a passage where David is speaking about the forgiveness of sins and says, blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin, against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So in other words, when you hear Paul say, just as David talks about righteousness of God apart from works, then you would anticipate that that's what he's going to talk about, that he's going to quote something that David says that has the word righteousness in it being credited to us. It's going to have something to do with that. He does not do that. He does not do that. Instead, he quotes this passage about the blessedness of being forgiven of sins. So how does this reference by Paul to David's words in Psalm 32 further support the point, or further, how do they connect, first of all? How does righteousness apart from works, being credited with righteousness apart from works, connect with the blessing of being forgiven of our sins? That's the first question. How are they connected? Second question you could ask is, how does this further support the point that Paul was just making in verses 4 and 5? Because it appears like that's what he's saying. Here, let me give you some more evidence to prove what I just said, just as David says, right? How does it support what he was just saying in verses 4 and 5, that justification is entirely a free act of God that has no basis in a person's works? You guys have answers? because this is where I stopped. No, I didn't. I, I spent some hours trying to figure all that out, and so I'll give you what I have. We're going to come back to that idea. The second one I said was, how does this quote from David support the idea that justification is entirely apart from works? The point that he was just making in verses 4 through 5, but we're going to look at the first point. In what sense can we say that this idea that we are declared righteous or credited with righteousness apart from works, how does it connect with the idea of what Paul says about the blessedness of being forgiven of sins or the one against whom the Lord does not count or credit his sins? Okay. Paul 
The conclusion you can draw from this is that Paul understands justification, which is what he's been talking about. He understands justification to involve a double counting, a double counting or crediting, a double counting or crediting. What do I mean? Here's what I mean. The one who is justified, the one who is counted righteous, okay, we've been talking about that for the last 30 minutes or so, is also necessarily the one who God does not count their sins against. It is necessarily the same person. It is necessarily the same idea. Both are included in it. Listen, think with me for a second. Think with me. Just think it through. How can God pronounce a righteous or a person righteous? How can he do that while still counting their sins against them? Have you ever thought about it? How does he do that? He can't. He can't do it. I mean, this would be illogical. This would be like a fairy tale. God does not, he cannot credit a person with righteousness while at the same time counting their sins against them. If our sins are counted against us, we cannot possibly be counted righteous. So then what does God do about our sins? What does he do? Does he just forget about them? This is going to get good. This is so good. Does he just forget about them? Does he just pretend they don't exist? Oh, I don't see that. I'm going to credit you with righteousness. Huh? He can't do that. This, this is what we talked about in Romans 3. He can't do that, or he would not be just. He can't look the other way. He can't pretend that our wickedness does not exist. He can't. He must do something about our sin. So listen, instead of counting our sin against us, he counted it against Christ. He counted it against Christ. He put it against our Redeemer, our Savior. He put our sin to his account and fully and completely punished him for it. is the gospel, beloved. That is the good news that you and I rejoice in, or at least it should be. That is the news that should move our hearts to praise God and to give our very lives to the one who took our sin upon himself so that God could credit us with his very righteousness, making us fully and completely acceptable to him. That is exactly what Isaiah the prophet spoke about in Isaiah 53. This prophecy concerning the Messiah, concerning Christ, looking forward. When he said this in chapter 53, verse 5, but he, that is Christ, it's a prophecy, beloved, he's looking forward. He was pierced for our transgressions. He can see it. He was crushed for our iniquities. Transgressions, iniquities, these are all different words for our wickedness, for our unrighteousness, for our sin, for our law-breaking. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace, beloved. Do you know what that's talking about? Peace with God. Not just some, here we go again, not just some general peace worldwide. This is about peace between the sinner, the rebel, and God. And with his wounds are we healed. 
Oh my goodness, how many times have I heard this passage by prosperity preachers? Pulled totally out of context. Hey, listen, it's promised right here. You just got to have faith and all of your ailments will go away. That's the promise. That's not the context. The context is salvation. We are healed of this great disease called sin. We are made right with God through Christ. That's the healing. Now, does this great salvation include the blessings of perfect physical health? Yes, in the next life. Yes. When finally these messed up, ruined bodies get removed and we get new glorified bodies. But beloved, this is in the context of our salvation. Our souls are healed. Do you get it? Do you understand? This is why every week I say, look at the context, look at the context. These guys just rip stuff out of context and say, this is what it means. See, it's right there in the Bible, so you've got to believe me. Never using it in context. Here we go again, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We're running away from God. And the Lord has laid, here it is, on him the iniquity of us all. The sin of us all. He's laid it on him. He's laid it on him. He put it to his account. Paul tells us the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This one you know, it's very familiar. For our sake, for the Christians, sake, he's speaking to Christians. He that is God, the Father, made him that is his Son, Jesus Christ, to be sin. Who knew no sin? The sinless one. He made him to be sin. Why? So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. One writer puts it this way. Christ became sin. No, not this quote. Christ became sin with our sins. Christ became sin with our sins in order that we might become righteous with God's righteousness. Hello! Is that crazy? You, it's crazy. It's crazy good. It's crazy good. It's not illogical. It's just unbelievable. It's hard to... Really, is that what you did, God? Yes, that is what I did. That is how I make you right. You have nothing to do with it. Come on. You ungodly, wicked sinner. Are you kidding me? It's by faith alone that any person is made right with me. And here's how I did it. I credited your sins to Christ's account. I put it on him so that I could credit you with the righteousness of God. One writer, John MacArthur, he kind of wraps it all up this way. Do you know, here we go, putting it all together. Do you know why God can credit righteousness to your account? Do you know why he can do that? He can, he can justly do that? He can logically do that. As I said to you before, if he's still putting your sins against you, he can't, right? And here's why. Because he credited your sin to Christ's account. And on the cross, Christ paid the price for your sin, which then satisfies God's requirement and allows God to credit his righteousness to your account and mine. That's the heart of the Christian faith. That's, that's the foundation of what we believe. That is the gospel. Listen. God never, ever could have credited righteousness to Abraham's account had not Abraham's sins been paid for. Here we go. And it was on the cross of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, though Christ had not yet come into the world, and he pauses, you know, this is, he's a preacher, and he, he realizes people might, wait a minute, how's that work? And then he says, that's no more difficult to understand than that our sins should be credited to Christ who came 2,000 years ago. 
He is the redemptive, or he is the apex of redemptive history. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, this is, not you, this is how you get your minds around it. How is it that God could justify Abraham if his sins hadn't been paid for? Because God was looking forward, just as Abraham was looking forward, and he was saying, I am going to put your sins on Christ. I am not going to put them against you. That is how I'm going to justify you, wicked Abraham. That's how. That's how I'm going to do it. Just like we now, living here in this age, he looks at us and he says, I am putting them back on Christ. That's where I'm putting them, not against you. He is the apex. He is the center of redemptive history. Those before the cross are looking forward. Those after the cross are looking back for their great salvation. That's the message. That's the point. Do you remember in Romans 3.25 where Paul talks about God justifying those who have faith in Jesus so that he can be just and justifier? And it says that he passed over former sins. Do you remember that conversation and we talked about that? That's the idea. He didn't pour out his wrath in full as he should have. Why? On those who had faith in him because he was waiting until that point in history where he would deal with their sins and punish them as they deserve, and he would do it all in Christ, thereby making a way for sinners to be made right with him and acceptable to him, and keeping him just. Now, concerning how Paul's use of David's words here in Romans supports the fact that justification, this is that second idea, a question I asked, is entirely a free act of God that has no basis in a person's works. Okay, How does David's quote support that? I would simply say that there is nothing that David did or could have done. There is nothing that David did or could have done to have made or kept himself right with God. But rather, it was solely God not counting his sins against him. That's what it was that allowed David to remain justified, to remain right with God, to not be condemned by God. And what is true of David and Abraham is true of us as well. It is strictly by faith that we become justified with God, and it is through faith that we continue to remain justified before God, declared right before God, continuing to believe that it was Christ who bore the penalty for our sins, all of them. Therefore, our sins are no longer put against us, but they have been put against him, and we are completely then forgiven. Right? We sang a song earlier. It comes from Psalm 133 and 4. If, Lord, you should mark my iniquities, if you were to count everything I did wrong, then who could stand? Who? Which one of you could stand before God? Certainly not me. No one. And the psalmist goes on to say, but with you, Lord. And in that song, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. Well, how do you think that all took place? It took place in Christ. It took place in Christ. That is how forgiveness is made possible. That is how it's made possible for you and I to be declared right before a just God. Beloved, the message Paul is sending in this section of Romans, it should be really clear, and here it is. Abraham was not justified by works. He was not, but rather it was by faith. And that very same thing could be said of all who have been justified through the ages, who have been made right with God, who have been saved. We have not contributed, nor can we contribute anything to our salvation. Abraham didn't contribute anything. David didn't contribute anything. I have not contributed anything. And if you are a child of God, you never, ever, or will you contribute anything to your salvation? 
It's a matter of faith. That's it. Faith in God, faith in His promises, faith in His Word, that you are redeemed by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And here I'll close here. If you have been saved through faith, justified, then you know what you are? Do you know what you are? Yeah, you are truly blessed. You are truly blessed. Because God does not count, nor will he ever count, ever, beloved, ever count your sins against you. And he has credited to you, he has put to your account his very righteousness. His very righteousness. And this act has made you and I who believe fully acceptable to him. Fully, completely, not halfway, not three-quarters of the way, but completely acceptable to God. And it guarantees that when that day comes, you and I will be welcomed, welcomed into his glorious heaven. Do you understand that? Welcomed. Why? Because I'm a good guy? No. Because God has credited to me, put to my bankrupt account, his very righteousness, and forgiven me all of my sins because he has put them all against his son and punished him in my place. So I'll close with this. When, if you are a Christian, and the next time someone asks you, how are you doing? How are you doing? You can say, you can say, regardless of your circumstances, whether you're poor or in bad health or just got laid off or any of the number of things that life likes to throw our way, you can say, oh, I'm truly blessed. I'm truly blessed. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you. God will not put my sins against me. He will not credit them against me. What does that mean? What do you, I don't understand. Well, because he has put them against his son. And he has, instead of, he's done a double counting, my friend. He's done a double counting. He does not count my sins against me. And this is crazy. But then he counts the righteousness of God to my account. And that alone is what makes me acceptable to this holy and righteous and perfect God. I am a blessed man. I am a blessed woman. You see? And last, sorry, Thomas, because he's going to come and lead us in communion here in just a moment. And it'll be good. I know. I'm trusting. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, if you're not trusting in him alone, if you don't believe like Abraham believed, having faith in God's word and his promises, if that's not you, beloved, I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how well you're doing in the health department or what job you have. When someone asks you, how are you doing? Your answer really should be, I am not doing well. That, I know you may not think that, but you're not. Because God, at that point, if you haven't placed faith, then your sins are counted against you. You have no righteousness. Because God hasn't credited his righteousness to your account. And therefore, when you stand before God on that day, things will not go well. He will not welcome you, but as a just and holy God, he will condemn you.
And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Because God has provided a way for us to be forgiven and declared right before him. And it is through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. So I would treat you, I would plead with you. Put your faith in him.